Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I hope everyone had an amazing, an amazing Mother's Day weekend. Shout out to the women in my life who are mothers, my beautiful bride, Ellen, my mom, Gwendolyn, and my sister, Nosizwe. I hope everyone had a happy Mother's Day and let their mother know they love them. Today's a special day as well because I'll be interviewing Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Yes, you heard that right. Everything going on in the world, we get a chance to interview right here on the Bakari Sellers Podcast, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. It sounds good to call him that. But before we get to Senator Schumer, I wanted to talk a bit about mayors, specifically the unique challenges that mayors across the country are facing as violent crime surges right at a time when demands for police accountability are at their highest. Now, why did I pick this out? Well, in case you missed it, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bollams announced this past week that she would not seek a second term. That surprised everybody. And among the reasons that are believed to have led to her decision not to run for re-election were both surges in violent crime and the recent announcement that one of the officers involved in the killing of Rayshard Brooks was going to be reinstated. I tell people all the time, there's no job other than maybe president of the United States that's tougher than being a big city mayor. And it's gotten worse since COVID. The same police you need to respond to crimes are the ones that pose the greatest political risk to you. And every mayor is being pushed to cut their police budgets. And while many of the voters and residents and small businesses demand answers on what to do about the surge in crime. I know that it makes some of my friends mad to say that police are necessary, but, you know, they are. I sue police departments and officers all across the country, and I take them to task and take them to the mat. But I also recognize that violent crime, like what we're seeing across the country, has to include some sort of response from law enforcement, in addition to all the other social service investments we want to see. Again, we don't want to abolish police. We just want to have better police. But this is a tall order. So it's no wonder that mayors are deciding that re-election just isn't in the cards as they've been burned out for the past few years. And it's a tall order to ask mayors to lead recoveries, find innovative non-policing reactions and responses to crime, cut the police budget and support their law enforcement, all while being asked to reform policing when only some aspects of policing are in their control. Pray is up to Mayor Bottoms on our next venture. And to my brothers, Frank, Scott, and Little Rock, and Randall Wolfen in Birmingham, who are making it happen despite all odds. And if you're in a city where you're experiencing these spikes in crime, find a way to support your local mayor, whether it be by supporting local peacekeeper organizations that are leading community-based responses to gun violence, or by pushing your other local elected officials to shoulder the load on police reform too. And that's that on that. Now to our very, very special episode with Senate Majority Leader, man, that feels good to say, Senator Chuck Schumer. I'm only going to, I know you're, you're busy saving the world, literally, uh, Majority Leader, that feels good to say, Chuck Schumer, but thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Bakari. I'm fighting the fight every day. What yes, choice do we have, right? <laughs> you know, for a lot of a lot of my listeners, tell them what exactly does it mean tangibly to be Senate Majority Leader? What's your day-to-day like? And what should Democratic voters reasonably expect in your capacity as majority leader? Okay, well, first it's it's the hardest job I've ever had. But 
it, I have more energy and more enthusiasm for it than any job I've ever had because it's so important. What we're doing yeah. is so important. Yeah. And look, I've asked myself this question. Why did so many people vote for a horrible man like Donald Trump? Probably one of the, probably the worst human being we've ever had uh, as president. He's a liar. He's a racist. He's, he has this infantile ego. He only cares about himself. And one of the reasons is people, too many people lost faith in the American dream that if they worked hard, they could better their lives and their kids would have better lives than them. And we have a mission. We have a mission to restore that faith, to help poor people get into the middle class, to help middle class people stay in the middle class. And if we don't do that, who knows what could happen in 2024? And who knows what could happen in 2022? So my mission and what your listeners should expect I'm going to be pushing every day for big, bold action along a whole lot of fronts. And we've begun to make some real progress on that. You know, when I became majority leader, um, leader of the Democrats in the Senate with very narrow majority, <laughs> people said we got an impossible task in the next two months. We have to do an impeachment trial of the president. We have to get all the president's impeachment trial of Trump. We have to do uh, we have to get all the president's cabinet in with 50 votes only. And we got to pass this ARP, the most progressive, sweeping, proposed legislation in 50 years. They'll never get all that done. Well, we did. And I'm particularly proud of the ARP. Let's talk about that real quick, Mr. Leader, if we can, because you got this in the first hundred days. You got the American Rescue Plan completed. And I think a lot of the reporting has been limited to the stimulus checks, but people seem to already have forgotten that this July will start seeing monthly child tax credit checks going to working families. Talk about how transformative this child tax credit will be for so many Americans. And more difficult question, do you think we'll be able to make it permanent? Great. Both good questions. First, it is hugely transformative. It is estimated that close to half the kids in poverty in America will be out of poverty this year because of these checks. What we did with the ARP, broadly speaking, you know, the contrast between us and the Republicans. Their big bill was the tax cut bill, you know, Mm -hmm. rich people and the big corporations. The top 1% got 80% of the benefits approximately. Mm. Our bill, guess what the top 1% got? Zero. And the lowest 20% in America, the lowest 20% income will get a 20% increase in their income, which is huge. If you are having trouble feeding your family, paying the rent, a 20% increase is is significant. So Mm -hmm. what this does... What this does is very simple. Starting in July, if you make below $75,000 as a single parent, if you make below $150,000 as a couple, which is about 85% of all Americans, you will get $250 per month for every child 6 to Mm. 17 and $300 per month for every child 0 to 6. When a child's born in poverty, you know this, Bakari, the odds are they're not properly clothed, fed, housed, educated, health care. When they become 18, they're in a deep ditch. Now, to their credit, many of them climb out on their own. Correct. But many don't. So this is I tell I tell all my constituents, this is not just good for the kids in poverty and their families. This is good for America. And we have to, we one of our goals is to make it permanent. If we can permanently take half the children in poverty in America out of poverty, which we're doing this year will transform the country. For for people who may only follow Washington casually, 
Talk about how important it was to get the cabinet in place so quickly, given the economic, social and public health challenges this administration walked into. And also talk about the diversity of this cabinet, something that hasn't been done before. Well, number one, we had a crisis. If we didn't have people in place, the crisis would last much longer. You know, we promised people right away that we would get checks. And as you know, McConnell didn't want to give anybody checks. We said 2000, we finally eked out 600 in December, but I promised I'd become leader. And by the way, our candidates, Warnock and Ossoff, who mm-hmm. gave us Senate majority, that's what they campaigned on. Yeah. The checks and the vaccines. And we promised we'd get the vaccines into people's arms and we would put communities of color first, not last in getting the vaccines. And we've begun to really do that. So that's significant. And The diversity of the cabinet is vital. When you have a diverse staff, people around you, you hear perspectives that you would never hear. You know, I instituted the Rooney Rule. Can I take a minute on this? I think. Sure, please do. Please do. Yeah. I instituted the Rooney Rule in the Senate. The Rooney Rule, Art Rooney was a, he was a white guy, but he he was a progressive leader of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He owned it. And he saw that all the players were African-American and none of the coaches, general managers were. So he said for every job in the Steelers, that's a high up job. We're going to have to interview of one out of three people of color. He did. And it changed his Steelers. It worked so well. The NFL did it. Now we have many black coaches and uh, general managers and stuff like that. So I did it in the Senate. And I not only said we're going to do that in the Senate, but we're going to publish statistics. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, what each staff had. I got some resistance, but it's really improved things. Just about half of my legislative assistants are black, are African-American. And mm-hmm. I think that's happening in other places. And I'll give you one example. So we were, I had read the book 1619, and we were talking about slavery. You know, that was the book about slavery in the uh, New York Times and everywhere else. And, you know, it impressed me so that the young lady who wrote the book, Remember, mm-hmm. she said her father was raised in the Mississippi, Correct. a racist. He joined the army, fought in a segregated unit in World War II. Then they settled in Waterloo, Iowa. And every holiday, he raised the American flag. And as a young, you know, as a teenager, young teenager, he said, why the hell is he raising the American flag? Because he's black. He can't uh, get the job he wanted. He had to be a bus driver, even though he was a very bright man. In the, he couldn't live where he wanted. And then one day in school, We were talking about this with my staff. That's how I bring it up. Then one day in school, the teacher said, gave them an assignment. It was eighth grade or ninth grade. Go home from your parents, find out what country they came from originally or their ancestors came from and draw a picture of that flag and write about the country. She and the only other black girl in her class discussed it. They didn't know what country they came from because their ancestors were dragooned into slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, So they drew the American flag. And that touched me. So we were talking about this. And here's what my staffers told me, which I never would have learned had we not, you know, when you, I'm close to my staff. They're like my yeah. friends. We're very I've close. seen, I've seen it. And they love, they love you. But so I've seen them. it. So they said what even the most progressive white people don't understand, but every African-American does, is that slavery is not simply something that happened way back in history. It's still with us every day. Correct. Every day. So you know what I did as a result? I sponsored the reparations bill. Yeah, well, and we thank you for that. Yeah, you but know. it shows you having a diverse, I'm sorry I digress, but diversity is not just something, you know, that's up there as an ideal. It actually has effect every single day. So I'm glad he had a diverse cabinet. I just, 
I'm sorry, I'm talking. You no, know, you no, know, that that makes perfect sense. But it leads me, it it, it kind of leads me to my next question, because a lot of people have been asking me about student loan debt. And when we talk about, you know, the disproportionate effect of some of our systems in the country on people of color, we do know that student loans disproportionately straddle people of color. So you've been as vocal as anyone in Washington about straight up debt cancellation, but there seems to be real hesitation this time from the administration in canceling student debt through executive action. But I think we all know there aren't 60 votes or maybe even 50 for broad based cancellation. So is the issue dead? And if not... If not, what does a path forward look like around canceling student loan debt? Okay, well, this is one thing. The advantage this we have with this is it can be done with President Biden can just do this with the flick of a pen. In other words, we believe, and Elizabeth Warren was one of the great leaders on this issue when I salute her. Uh, Ayala Presley is carrying it in the uh, House. But in any case, she researched it and we totally believe it's certain that the president has the legal authority to do it, quite frankly, because these are debts to the federal government. Mm -hmm. And right now, debt is, you know, because of COVID, you don't have to pay your debts right, the student debt, the monthly payment right now. Well, if the president can do that, he can also just cancel it. Makes sense to me. That that makes legal sense to me. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're a law school, you know, (laughs) graduate and all that. So anyway, so we went to the president and told him that. And we are arguing with some of his staff agrees with us, some doesn't. Then they made another argument. They said, well, it's still taxed because the law was it was taxed. So if you had 20,000 of student debt, $20,000 were given, you would still owe $5,000 in taxes if you were at a 25 percent rate. We got rid of that in the ARP. There were so many good things in the ARP. That's one of the smaller ones, but it's good. So they don't have that argument. So we are just the the momentum is mounting. And the president, I said to the president, I get along great with him. I think he's done a great job. But I said to him, we're going to keep this campaign going. He said, go right ahead. I'm sure he did. So he's looking for more pressure. And I would urge your listeners to uh, email, call, write, however you contact your politicians. And even if you never have, tell them you want them to cancel at least we, we started, we'd like to do the whole thing, but started at a big number, 50,000 of student debt. 73% of all students would be canceled. And listen to this. It is a racial justice issue. It falls disproportionately on black and brown people, many of whose families had never gone to college. So they got taken advantage of mm-hmm. by these horrible for-profit colleges and others. And so they ended up signing up for all this debt and never even getting a degree so they could yep. get the kind of job to pay it back. So we estimate 28% of the wealth gap between black and white would be eliminated if we did this. Let's talk about the next 100 days. The first 100 days were dynamic. Let's talk about the next 100 days. You have the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act are both out of the House and in the Senate. Tell me what your prognosis is or what you think about the ability to get those two bills passed and, and the American Jobs Plan done and a budget passed to keep government open. You got your, you got your hands full. <laughs> no, we were talking before we went on the air. You have two-year-old twins. I yes. have a two-year-old grandson. <laughs> and what he likes to do right now is turn on and off the light switches. He turns it on, light on, light off. Gives him power. And then he goes, Noah, no, that's his name, Noah. Noah did it. So say, Senate did it. Very easy. Very easy. Very yeah. easy, yes. But, um, so... On, let's start with each one. On justice and policing, 
Corey Booker, who has been our lead on this. Originally, I um, met, I, I asked Corey Booker and Kamala Harris, who was then senator, to put together a bill. I worked on it with them. We consulted with uh, Ben Crump, you know, the yeah, of course. lawyer for many of the families, who, of course, you know, we met together. And it's a very good bill. And now he is having very serious, positive negotiations with Scott, with Tim Scott from your home state of South Carolina. And uh, he's optimistic that we can make some progress. Look, if we can pass this with 60 votes because there can't be reconciliation, that would be great. So I'm looking forward. I spoke to Corey just a few days ago. He's hopeful. So we're going to pursue that. Well, um, and I, I, you know, I think that the date is somewhat of a, of a, I don't, I don't see anybody just, you know, you've been very gracious with your time. I won't go into our, our meetings or, or settings, but I think we all want it by May 25th, but I don't, I think we'd rather have something good than fast. Is that accurate? You got it. hundred percent. And I've said to the families and you, you and I have met with the families in the civil rights community, look, we're not going to put something on the floor that you don't think is adequate. Okay, but Corey's optimistic and he's a damn good negotiator. Okay, that's that one on uh, just on um, uh, John Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, We have to get this done. I think if we don't get it done, it endangers our majorities for a decade. But that's just me. Not just that. As bad. It endangers our whole democracy. Correct. What these despicable Republican legislators are doing is fundamentally what is done in authoritarian countries. In other words, when you lose an election in democracy, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to figure out why you lost and try to win the people over you lost. In an authoritarian country, in a dictatorship type country, you try to exclude people from voting. That's what they're trying to do. And that would that is so, it gets, it outrages me. It gets me so mad. I'm from Brooklyn, but you have a nice show, so I won't use the curse words that I would like to use. <laughs> but in any case, so there are a few members of our caucus who say, let's see if we can get this done in a bipartisan way. And Amy Klobuchar is marking up the bill. That's, you know, voting on the bill and doing amendments on the bill in committee next week. I think it's next Tuesday, this coming up Tuesday. And we'll see. We'll see where our Republican colleagues are. Are they willing to be constructive or are they just going to say no or try to do gotcha amendments or negative amendments? If we can get this done in a bipartisan way, super. That's great. If we can't get it done in a bipartisan way, I have told my caucus that when we convene, we will have to figure out how to get this done. And everything's on the table, everything to get it done. We cannot fail in this. Or as you said, it could endanger our majority. It endangers our democracy. And what they're doing is despicable. Speaking of, you know, how I, I, I guess answer the next bill, but we'll do. Yeah, that. I, we'll, we'll we'll get back to that. I mean, it's only what? How big is the transportation bill? What is that? Two point eight trillion or something 2.2, like that. Two and then the families bill is one eight four trillion. But you That's, know what, Bakari, we are at a point where we have to change America. Correct. And it's infrastructure, and it's climate, and it's jobs, and it's racial justice. And another thing, here's one thing in the families bill: childcare. The lack of child care. We are the, of the 37 most developed nations. We're number 36 in child care. And because the world has changed and we have to adapt to it. When I was a kid, my dad worked. He was an exterminator. Um, you know, my mom stayed home. 
And um, that was that. And I got home from school at three o'clock and she asked me how school was. Fine, mom, here's some milk and cookies. Go outside and play. Now, the number of families with who have two parents, one of whom work, is minimal. The vast majority of families are either single parent families or parents, two parent Multiple families jobs. who both work. Yep. You need childcare. Otherwise, people can't work. They can't work at the jobs. It puts huge strain on these families, and it's hugely expensive. One of the things in the family plan that the president proposed is childcare, and no one pays more than 7% of their income to get childcare. That'll change America, and it'll enhance our workforce. Another thing in this plan that you know will create a lot of new jobs through infrastructure, but a large portion, I think about 40% of the people who will get the jobs are people who are on minimum wage, working part-time, getting out of prison, the poorest people who haven't had opportunity, this is a real path. And construction work is a good job, but it pays well. So there's so much in this bill, so many things, climate, so important to change, you know, to get green. And but with all tying it to jobs, tying it to good paying jobs, right. and tying it to making sure communities of color get treated properly as they weren't in terms of infrastructure you know so many highways were put in the middle of correct i mean i you know when pete when when mayor pete said it secretary pete pete Buttigieg, our good friend said uh was talking about the racism in transportation not many people understood that i know you got to run soon because you're saving the world but let me let me get one more maybe two more questions out of you and how do you one of the questions that i've had and i've been hard on on a couple of members of our caucus i say our because i I just appreciate the fact yeah that i appreciate the fact that we're in the majority now um, but I also understand the realities of statewide politics as a Democrat myself who ran and lost statewide in a deeply red Southern state. But how do you manage to keep your caucus together when okay. you have every wing of the party in your caucus? And how different is your job from the Republican counterparts who tend to have less diversity within their ranks? That's true. They march, you know, they're an army and they march. And with we Democrats, each of us <laughs> has a great idea. <laughs> exactly. They're yes. Thinkers. OK, but here's what I do. It's a good question. I have a leadership team. Okay, it's 12 senators. We meet every Monday night to discuss the week and the month ahead. Who's on my leadership team? Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Joe Manchin and Mark Warner and then people in between. I ask three things of my team. Number one, respect each other. Don't call each other names. You can disagree. You should say what you think. But don't say, oh, they're doing it because they're selling out to this or she's not doing it or he's not doing it because he doesn't have the courage. Number two, realize, walk in the other person's shoes. West Virginia is not New York. But three, at the end of the day, realize this. Unity is all we got. If we don't stick together, if each of us goes in a different direction, we're all screwed. (laughs) You know, plain and simple. So far, that has worked. And on every major vote, the cap, every one of the cabinet, the ARP bill, the president, the impeachment of the president, and last time, saving the ACA, all going against the horrible tax plan for the rich, and the impeachment the first time, we had total democratic unity. So it's a struggle, and people say what they want. My secret weapon, you're a podcast, but you'll see what I'm holding up. Oh, your your flip phone. I have a flip phone. I have <laughs> a number. I've memorized the number of every one of my sick colleagues. They call me all the time. Constant communication. And constant respect has led us to unity and very strong progressive results. I'm going to keep doing it because we have no choice but to succeed. 
Last question for you. I actually have on my hash story a shirt here. It was just in Oklahoma. I shout out to the, the delegation from Oklahoma visiting my marijuana manufacturing facility we have out there. Are yeah. we going to get marijuana descheduled or rescheduled? Are we going to get to a point where we can actually unravel some of the inequities that are associated yes. with it? This is my favorite question, so I saved it till last. And give me a time frame because people really want this to happen. Well, here's the immediate time frame. The three people working on a comprehensive bill are myself, Senator uh, Wyden, and Senator Booker. And we will be introducing our bill shortly. And it is not just legalization, but it deals with the injustices of the past, expungement of the records, making sure that the money that's made from marijuana goes to the communities, communities of color, poor people, communities that have paid the price Yep. Or this ridiculous scheduling of marijuana, like it's like heroin or or cocaine or yeah. something like that. And I'm assuming and you're waiting on the you're waiting on the Safe Act because you want a more comprehensive piece of legislation. Correct. That is Makes correct. Sense. We want it comprehensive. We're not going to bargain against ourselves. We want strong, comprehensive bill. We'll introduce it, and then there's huge support. Hey, listen to this: South Dakota, hardly the most progressive state in the country, had it on the ballot and it got 65 percent. To, to legalize. I can't believe that's that's a huge number. Yeah. So we're going to get some support from the right on this as well, we hope. And we're going to push it. It's going to take a little while. We're going to need a mass campaign. But there's real excitement in the country to do this now. And by the I, way, all that parade of horribles, you know, when first states started decriminalizing or legalizing, oh, crime will go up. Oh, everyone will become a drug addict. None of that has happened. None of that has happened. Well, thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Shout out to your comms team for putting this together. Shout out to you. Many people don't know that you took time out your schedule. Uh, I don't know when it was, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, to uh, sit down with myself and Ben Crump and some of the uh, mothers of the movement and families who've been uh, affected by police violence. And, it was a moving moment. They were wonderful. Yeah. And I people don't know all the things you do behind closed doors. And so I just want to say thank you for that. We appreciate you. Have a blessed day. And enjoy the summer in New York City. Thank you. It's coming back. It's it coming is coming back. back. New York have, is a, coming back. have a good one. Bye bye. Bye. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to talk about this fight in the House amongst Republicans who are seeking to kick Liz Cheney out of the House Republican leadership because she's not a Trump puppet. In case you missed it, there's an active effort afoot to both kick Liz Cheney out of House leadership and to primary her in Wyoming because she's only one of a handful of elected Republicans stating the obvious, and that's that the Republican Party can't be a national party again until they part ways with Trump. As you know, I'm probably grinning while I'm reading this, but that's obvious to everyone except House Republicans. And therein lies the dilemma. Republicans can't win without Trump. But most Republicans know they can't win with Trump either, not the presidency at least. Now, I really don't care, and I want them to continue to lose, and I want them to lose in places that they're winning now. But this is an opportunity for Democrats that they focus on delivering before the midterms on the economy, the jobs and families plans, and on justice issues, and not go along to get along in the name of bipartisanship. But the American people care about our results. And if reconciliation and the filibuster have to be ended to do so, I sound like a broken record on that, I know. But at the end of the day, most people don't even know what these things are anyway. But they aren't sending those stimulus checks back either, are they? Any of your Re Republican friends send their checks back? I don't think so. Let Republicans eat each other alive while we deliver on our promises we made in 2020. 
Because if we don't, we could squander an opportunity to lead as Republicans fight through their identity crisis of whether or not they want to be the party of insurrectionists or if they're looked to the future. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Thursday with another dope episode. Happy Mother's Day once again. And thank you for tuning in to the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. Mm-hmm.